to the New Testament. We are in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. The text for this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, Your kingdom come, that is our text, but we will read starting from verse 5 through verse 15 of Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for You have given us proper instruction regarding prayer. And we say, even as Jesus' disciples did, teach us, Lord, how to pray. And Father, we need this regular reminder. Father, that our prayers would not be focused merely on our own needs, but that we would be thinking about the glory due your name, that we would be thinking about the growth and the expansion of your kingdom, that we would be thinking about how glorious it is that you have called sinners, that we would be sons and daughters within your kingdom, that we would have the full rights as as our Lord Jesus Christ has. Father, that he would be the one who shares his riches with us eternally in heaven. Father, help us never to think of ourselves as victims, as paupers, for that's not what you called us to be in Jesus Christ. Father, help us always to reflect on your glorious riches that you shower upon your beloved children. And Father, we thank you that you are one who graciously forgives sinners. Father, we pray that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth with power this day. That there there are any here who have not committed their life to Jesus Christ, man, woman, or child. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work transform the heart to save sinners. We pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever come to the realization how bad Americans are at geography? That there's so many countries in the nation that I couldn't tell you where they are. And here, when I was in China, in Shanghai, I learned about a country in Africa 
called Benin. I had never heard of the country Benin before, and I had to go look it up on a map. And it's right there in that little kidney lobe area on, on the western side. They have this little small coastline. And then of, of, all the, of all the people that I've met that, I've only met one man from this nation, Benin. He was an amazing man. He was a faithful Christian man. Uh, and if you think about what happens when you meet people of different countries, of different kingdoms, what, what happens is that if there's only one, then that person, to some degree, becomes representative of what you think about the entire kingdom, about the entire country. What happens when someone meets you as a Christian? What do they see? What do they hear? What do they get? And this is the big question that I'm wondering about for us. When we talk about your kingdom come, how does our uh, citizenship in heaven, even as we're living on this earth, how does it reflect to others about our great king? Because how we act, how we think, our attitude towards everything reflects about our great king about our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If there's a tendency to complain about uh, it, this thing is not right, and this is not right, and this is not right, and I, I'm, I'm fed up with all of these things. You think about the, this, this year, 2020. Okay, It's not over yet. we still got several months to go. And are we going to fall into that same trap of doom and gloom? Are we going to mourn as those who have no hope? Or are we going to rejoice trusting in our God? That he is working even through these difficult situations. That, that bringing men to their knees. That this is what God does before he saves them by a great deliverance. It's exhausting men, women, and children of any hope they have in this world, in this life. That should cause us to say, wait a minute, I have no hope here. What is a valid means of hope? What is a valid hope? And that you and I might say, that hope is Jesus Christ. And that's the only hope that we have. And that's the only hope that we will ever have. As we come to this passage, here is Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. I would describe it as the greatest sermon ever preached, by the greatest preacher there ever was and will be, by the greatest man who ever walked the face of this earth. Can't summarize it any better than that. Jesus, who preached the word, can't get any better than that, any clearer than that. And Jesus, of all people, he's the giver of the law. Moses was merely the messenger. He was merely the hands that passed it off. Because Jesus is the word. He is the word incarnate. And that when he says, hey, listen, I'm going to interpret what God has given you in this passage, he can't be wrong. He can only be right. The one who gave the law, the one who is the law, must have the perfect interpretation of the law. And then he addresses this matter of prayer because he realizes that his people then, he realizes his people now, how easily we forget about prayer, how much of a duty it is that we're in the word, that we're in prayer, and that when we go to him, it's not merely a laundry list of things that we want. I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And afterwards, all right, everything's great. Now just give these things to me and my life will be great. No, it's seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and trusting that all these things will be added to you. So here Jesus is talking about 
the kingdom to come. What we see in this, in this short part, the second petition, is that the Lord's Prayer's second petition pleads for the destruction of Satan's kingdom and the advancement of God's kingdom of grace. The Lord's Prayer's second petition pleads for the destruction of Satan's kingdom and the advancement of God's kingdom of grace. We'll look at this in three points. The first is, your God, the great king. The second, the kingdom of your great God. And third, the advancement of God's kingdom. So the first point, your God, the great king. Thinking back about the Lord's Prayer, last week we looked at the first petition, hallowed be your name. And we organized the Lord's Prayer into six six petitions. Okay, so there is a preface, our Father who is in heaven, that's the preface. Then there's six petitions, six requests. And the first three, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those three petitions are the petitions directly related to God. And then the latter three, daily bread, forgive our debts, uh, lead us not into temptation, that those three relate to man, relate to us, relate to, to our interactions with others. And uh, I hope you can see that of these petitions, that first one, hallowed be your name, that that is the, that is the large bullet point, that is the Roman numeral one, that's the summary of the entire, entire Lord's Prayer. Meaning that the, these five petitions that come afterwards, that the fulfillment of those five petitions answers the first one. So when we ask that God's name will be glorified, that his name would be praised, well, how does he do that? He does it by fulfilling the other five. So when we think about God's name and his glory, and then when we pray the others, we're realizing when he answers those latter, the, the latter five, he's actually answering the first one. And this is a regular reminder, at least to me, and hopefully to you also, that the order of the petitions, it's God, 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 me, me, me. God, 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 me, me, me. So when we pray, before we, when we open our mouth, we should be thinking, okay, God, what is it that you want? Let me pray for the things that you want, and I will trust that you will provide the things that I need. Because you know my needs better than I do. And we should be seeking your kingdom. We should be thinking, thinking and seeking your honor. And we should be seeking that your will will be done, not our will. <clears throat> so here, we talk about a kingdom. Your kingdom come. The address, the mention of a kingdom, it requires that there is a king. There must be a ruler if there is a kingdom. And that God proclaims himself as the great king. Psalm 47.2 For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 24.10 Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Psalm 95.3 For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. That our God is a great king. Malachi 1, when he's speaking with Israel. And Malachi is, is the book, the lawsuit, the covenantal lawsuit of God, the husband, to Israel, his bride. And he talks about how a father, he says, am I a father? And he says, 
Shouldn't a father receive respect? And he, he rebukes them by saying, hey, you haven't given me honor. You, you bring uh, damaged goods. You bring sacrifices that are unclean, that they're, uh, they're less than perfect, right? They're maimed. You bring me these sacrifices. And he asks them the question, would you bring these to your local ruler? I Meaning, would you bring these to your mayor? You wouldn't bring them to your mayor. Why would you bring them to me? And then he finishes by saying, I am a great king. So our God indeed is a great king. He is the king of kings. We think about the nature of our king. That our God is the God of holiness. That in him is no darkness at all. That there's no sin about our God. There's no lie about our God. That everything about God is set apart and different. There is creation and there is creator. And he is entirely different. His holiness describes his otherness. He's not the same. And the big question that people keep asking, how can a man born of woman be pure? How can a man uh, who is born a sinner stand before this righteous God who is holy? Is not God a consuming fire? Does he consume people? That Moses, of all people, God said in his own word, there was none like him. There was none like Moses in the Old Testament. And that Moses asked to see God's face, and, and God made it very clear, hey, if you see my face, you'll be consumed. You're going to die. You can't do that. This is God and his holiness. That our God is the God of all truth. Do you ever run into people who... It's like that song, when their lips are moving, they're lying, right? If I, if I see your lips moving, I know you're telling something that's false. Our God is not like that at all. That God never speaks lies. That he always remembers and keeps his promises. And this is what we do when we pray, is we're praying, saying, God, you promised this and this and this. Please provide those things. Please fulfill your promises. Because that's the only claim that we have upon our God. That our God is the God of all mercy. He is the gracious and the compassionate God. That our God is one who shows mercy to his people. That all kinds of people can cry out to God. But who are those that God actually hears? Who are those that God actually answers? It's only those who have the, the covenant through Jesus Christ, who have the mediator through Jesus Christ. So many will cry out to God for mercy in that dark and dangerous hour. It's only those who are trusting in Jesus Christ who have this claim, Father, hear me for the sake of your Son. It's only because we have a mediator in Jesus Christ that our sins are covered, that God is merciful, that the, the covenant extends to us. That God has promised that he would not strike David dead when he sinned. That there was a difference between King Saul, who had no covenant, and King David, who had a covenant. That with Saul, he could say, okay, he sinned, I'm cutting him off. But with David, he had promised, when he sins, I will discipline him with the rod of men. But my covenant will not depart from him. Perhaps we can say... That God, when someone sins, at any point could decide, I'm going to strike this man dead with a lightning bolt. 
But all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, that you have this covenant upon you, that God has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. And that is the hope of mercy that we have in this great king. He's also this loving and this compassionate God. We realize that God's love is unconditional. He never says, I'll love you if you do this. If you do this, then I'll love you. His love is already there. He proves it by sending his son to die on behalf of sinners. While, he, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, he didn't say, hey, hey, I'm looking forward and I see that, that you're going to eventually do all these things and I'm sending my son for you. No, no, no. He saw what you and I would be outside of him. He sent his son to die. And that he calls us that we might live in response to his mercy. In response to his love. And this God is a God of justice. You wonder, how can justice be done in various situations? What is the right thing to do? You realize that God is never short of that answer. He always knows the right thing to do. He is always just. He cannot be, uh, he, he cannot do any injustice. And that he is sovereign over all. Psalm 103, 19. He is sovereign over all his creation. That he rules every detail of our lives. Nothing is out of place. Nothing is out of order. Down to the very hairs on our head. The ones in the front here that keep falling off. That he's sovereign over all those things. Nothing's out of place. Everything is in place for our God. Every day. Every day of our lives is written out in his book. Before one of them came to be. And that you and I, when we think about the details, think about the truths of this great God, that we should constantly be saying, we marvel, we rejoice. We are glad that, God, we are under your rule. That we're glad that we're under your rule. Think also of the rival prince. So this is the nature of our great king. Then we have the rival prince in Satan. That he is the father of lies, we're told. That whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks his native language. That Jesus said regarding Satan, that he was a murderer from the beginning. That he killed, he killed Adam and Eve with these lies. That he brought death into this world by deceiving them. That he delights in death. And we're told that he is a thief. That he comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy. He is the epitome of all wickedness and darkness. We, we have God who is merciful, who is gentle and loving. And then you have Satan who is cruel and merciless. You think about cruel people, cruel masters. Even, even an animal is given time off to eat. Even the, the slave has, has mercy in that regard. He gets some time off the rest. Everyone needs to sleep. But here, Satan, Satan has no mercy to those who are his subjects. But Satan is one who is hateful, and he incites discord. You're getting along with your, your friend? Well, Satan comes in there. No, we can't have that. We've got to get you to kill each other. And he's full of pride, and he's full of anger and bitterness. You realize, you realize that there's no joy in Satan at all. He has no joy. God is full of joy. God's people are full of joy. And 
by birth, sinners are under the rule of the prince of the power of the air, who is at work in the sons of disobedience. That Jesus, in speaking of all people to the religious rulers, those who are the most religious on this earth, the Pharisees and the, uh, the scribes and the priests, and he was saying to them, you are of your father, the devil. If, if he, Jesus was saying that regarding his own people, regarding the best, the religious best, what about the worst of us? And we come to the realization that the only way that we can see God as the great king, that we rejoice and delight under his rule, is that if you have a right relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, that this is the only way that we can see God as the great king. This is the only way that we can have a right view of God is through his son, Jesus Christ, and having a relationship with him. That God, in calling sinners to repentance, you would think that if a king had rebels in his land, he's not going to treat them well. Okay, I'm going to round them up. I'm going to exterminate them. But God is one who goes to the ends of the earth and, and earnestly pleads that the rebels would come. Come, let me tell you this good news. No, no, we don't want to have good news. We want to be far away from you. We want to be apart from you. We don't want anything to do with you. We want to fill our lives with everything but you. And God says, no, let me come. Let me tell you what I've done for you. Let me tell you this good news. Well, what if... What if we can just grovel to you and, and we could just live lives of misery and, and, and then, you know, after all that, you can forgive us. He says, no, that's, that's not good news. The good news is that you are forgiven through my son. I sent him to die on a cross. That this is your only hope. This is the only way. Well, what if I just work really hard? No, no, no. You can work all. You can work for eternity. You can't pay it off. That, that's, what, that's what hell is. Jesus paid it all. He suffered the very pains of hell. So you're telling me that this righteousness that I lack, Jesus gives as a free gift. Yes. That's too good to be true. No. You remember we talked about God is the God of all truth. He never lies. This offer is so good. You mean my sins can be forgiven, paid for by another. Yes. Paid for by the Son, Jesus Christ. So the righteousness I lack that I receive by faith. I believe the promise. Correct. You believe the promise. And his righteousness is yours by faith. Too good to be true? No. This is God's offer. We didn't make it up. It's found in God's word. You're called to believe it. So this is the first point. Your God the great king. We have the second point. The kingdom of your great God. Perhaps... The question has come up for you. Seems like this term kingdom and God has been used in various ways. What are we actually praying for? What kingdom? So there are at least three usages of kingdom, the kingdom of God. So there's the kingdom of God's power. This describes all of creation. That God rules over all of his creation. Everyone is under his authority, whether or not they like it or not. So that's the kingdom of his power. All of creation is under his rule. We're not praying about that kingdom. There's a kingdom of God's glory or the kingdom of heaven. This is synonymous with heaven. 
consists of the angels and the elect who have died and are in heaven. And to some degree we're praying about that, that the, the kingdom would come, come Lord Jesus, and that eternity would begin, right? That, that God's people would be ushered into his kingdom of heaven. But what we're specifically praying about in this petition, second petition, your kingdom come, is we're praying about God's kingdom of grace. God's kingdom of grace. So this is the, the rule of Christ in the hearts and lives of his people. This is God's rule in his church. And Jesus addresses this kingdom on multiple occasions. That Mark chapter 1 Verses 14 and 15, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus' ministry starts at the end of the life of John the Baptizer, that Jesus says, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, repent and believe in the Gospel. John 18, 36, at the end of his life, he's, he's standing there uh, before Pilate, was it? John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So here, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, my kingdom is not connected with any, any nation, any geopolitical organization. That there was a time when Israel represented the people of God. and There were always people outside who were being brought in. Uh, but here... Jesus is saying is that it's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the oddity is that here, he who has all authority and power standing before Pilate, Pilate's asking him all these fundamental questions. What is truth? So you're a king? And he who rules over all, that Pilate has no authority or power except that Jesus, who is in chains, had given it to him. Think about the reality of this kingdom of grace. Luke chapter 11 verse 20. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there's various ways we can think about this kingdom. That this kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is growing. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That uh, here Jesus is talking about uh, this time. Yet we're also told that this kingdom of grace is in men's hearts. Luke 17, 21. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Meaning that the kingdom of grace is within men's hearts. That what we believe about God, how he rules in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our actions, that this is God's kingdom ruling in men. Ruling within your heart and mine. The beginning of the reign of God in you is the destruction of the old man and the birth of the new. So that when you have uh, someone who is born again, someone who is converted, what's happening is somebody has to die and someone new has to live. This is what happens in. Baptism. This is what's symbolized in baptism, Romans 6, 3-4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Meaning that the kingdom of God begins in men's hearts when the old person is dead. You know who that old person is? It's very easy to know who that old person is. Because he's now praying, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That old person is saying, hallowed be my name, my kingdom come, my will be done. And he lives out everything in his life according to those three requests. Hallowed be my name, that your name would be glorified. That your kingdom, the advancement of your rule would grow. And that everyone would live and, and function according to your will. That that is the old man. But you realize that if you have that, just think about how disastrous this world would be if you had, you know, six billion kings and queens and uh, no subjects, no one would get along with each other. This, this would be horrible. So this kingdom of grace then has everything to do with submission and joy and obedience found within our hearts. Any, any kingdom or any king is known by his kingdom and the quality of his citizens. So you think about a kingdom mentioned before the nation of Benin. Uh, what, a, what a quality man that I had met in China. That uh, here, when you meet someone who is a citizen of heaven, a Christian, anytime you meet such a person, you interact with him or her, you're getting, you're getting some impression about this king that we worship. Think for a moment about King Solomon and how this woman, Queen of Sheba, that she visited Solomon and then she saw the order of his nation, his court, his servants. You think about the servants, they weren't dragging their feet going, oh, we got to serve food to the king and this is horrible. And No, no, there wasn't any of that moaning. So you have some idea what this is like. You ever go to Starbucks? Have you ever seen a Starbucks employee moaning and groaning and you know with a sad look on their face? No, you, you don't. You don't see that at all, right? Or you go to Trader Joe's. You ever see a Trader Joe's say, "No, no, I'm too busy. I can't help you." Does this tell you something about the kingdom? And then we think about the kingdom of God. So this Queen of Sheba, she says, First Kings ten eight. How how blessed are your men? How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom? That the, the very thing about King Solomon and having wisdom, where did he get it from? Jesus gave it to him. And the structure of his kingdom. And she's saying, how blessed are your subjects? And you and I have to remember, if, if Solomon had this blessing of God and his subjects were blessed, then how much you and I should be saying, we are blessed of God, that we would be under his rule, this great king. How much greater is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ than the reign of Solomon? Solomon's reign came to an end. Jesus' reign never ends. Think back to what we heard in the call to worship in Psalm 145. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, 
and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Is this, is this what describes us as God's people? That we talk about the glory of God's majesty, the glory of his kingdom. Come, let me tell you about my king. Let me tell you about what he has done for me. This is not a time for groaning. This is not a time for outrage and complaints. That uh, when you interact with others, is there joy and peace and satisfaction in your conversations? With your Christian friends, with your non-Christian friends, what do they see about you? Are they seeing the satisfaction of you being in the glorious kingdom of our God. God, we're, we're under your rule. And everything about your rule is good. We didn't say everything is perfect, meaning that, that there's injustices or that there's travesties or there's sadness. But are we saying, God, the overall ten- tenor of my life is I delight to be under your rule. And that the kingdom that you have is exceedingly good. And I should desire that others would be under your rule because I'm telling them and I'm believing for myself this good news of Jesus Christ. Do your thoughts and your words communicate a dissatisfaction as a child of the great king? Here God describes his own godly ones as blessing him and speaking of the glory of his kingdom. This is our duty as joyful subjects. We read earlier the example. It was a negative example of Jonah. Hard to imagine for a moment. Here was a prophet of God. He was sent of God. Go to Nineveh. Bring them good news. So Nineveh is this way. Then he goes the other direction on a ship. So he's he's got this message. And he says, I'm going to sink to the bottom of the ocean with it. Because he says... I don't want them to believe it. And here, Jonah understands God. God, I know that you're gracious and compassionate, that your loving kindness extends. And I want those people who are my enemies, the enemies of my people, I want them condemned to hell, is what Jonah was saying. Think for a moment. Is there anyone in your life that you say, you know what, I hate that person? Should you as a Christian be saying, God, pour down your eternal judgment on that person? This should never be. We should never be hating someone that much that we say, God, cut off your grace from that person. If there's anyone that you hate, we should be saying, God, extend your grace to that person. We're never allowed to pray for someone's eternal judgment. That's, that's never permissible. That we should be doing the very opposite. So that your enemies would then become your friends. By the work of Jesus Christ. Think about what Jonah should have been doing. There in chapter 4 we're told. He was some distance off. He was from a vantage point to see the city of Nineveh. Because what he wanted to see was the flames and, and you know, the explosions and the carnage. This is what the, this is what the prophet was, was waiting for. God, 
send down your napalm on them and consume them. But it didn't happen. And God asked them these questions. Hey, wait a minute. You're so upset about this little plant that I gave you to provide you some shade. And God is saying, what about those 120,000 people living in that city? That God is saying, those are my people. Meaning that I created them. This plant I provided for you. And so you, you think about if there's anyone that you hate in such a way, someone who has offended you, someone who's offended your parents, someone who's offended your children, whatever it might be, we have to be able to say, we want the gospel to go to them. That means the gospel should be going everywhere because we should be desiring the gospel to bear fruit in the lives of those we hate most, then there should be no end to our desire for the gospel to go forward. And then we think about what, what job we have as citizens of our great king, we ought to be ambassadors. And ambassadors must represent the one who sent him in the manner that the, that the one who sent desires for them. Second Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. An ambassador represents the one who sent him saying, be reconciled to God. That this is the good news. Believe upon it. It's not the person who's, who's got this giant Bible beating on someone's head saying, the Lord condemn you. It's saying, come drink of the fountain. This is the mercy of our God. Come eat those who have no money. Come drink those who cannot buy bread. Whatever it is, turn. Embrace the good news. Because Jesus, Jesus is sufficient to cover for your sins. That this is what God calls us to do as citizens of his kingdom. And then you think about the rival kingdom. The kingdom of Satan. I said earlier... This is the worst kind of slavery. You want to talk about the guilt of conscience? You want to talk about having no rest? And the results, the eternal results, present misery followed by eternal death and destruction. There's no comparison. There's only two routes. Kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's grace, or the rival kingdom of Satan that leads to destruction. These are the only two paths. So that's the second point, the kingdom of your great God. We have the third point, the advancement of God's kingdom. The advancement of God's kingdom. We have the, the means of advancement. How does God's kingdom go forward? It goes forward by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the ministry of the word, by the preaching of his word, by the sharing of his word, by those who bring good news to others. And it goes forth by prayer. You think about the work of conversion. That these things don't happen unless there is a whole lot of fervent prayer behind it. Fervent prayer from others. You think about also the way God's kingdom advances. There must be the destruction of Satan's kingdom. 
It's like two armies facing each other, battling. Is that that line, the battle line has to move. That if Jesus' kingdom is going to advance, Satan's kingdom has, has to go back. There has to be this tearing down of strongholds, old sinful habits, old attitudes, hardened ways. The, the statement, this is the way I've always done it, not going to cut it, it's got to go. Hey, this is how I was raised, sorry, that's gonna, those things are of the past, right? We've got to learn a new way. It's the way of the king, our almighty God. It's the way of Jesus Christ. The tearing down of Satan's kingdom involves the changing of mindsets. Thinking not according to instinct, thinking not according to our sinful and selfish flesh. It's thinking about the ways of God, His kingdom, His glory, His will. Think also about the spread of the gospel and the growth of Christ's church. That you and I ought to be praying for this work. If we're saying, this ruler, this king is so great, then we ought to say that many people all over this world, whatever their issues are, their greatest need is this. Not, not food, uh, not uh, warmth, not education. The greatest need is for them to know Jesus Christ. For them to know Jesus Christ, who is the only way to the Father, who is the only way to heaven. There's no greater need than that. We should be praying for that ends. That other nations, who have it much worse than we do, realize that oftentimes the good news of the gospel spreads where there is the greatest opposition. That where there is the greatest comfort, which is what we have here, then it seems like our lives are so filled with other things that that we're distracted by the essential things. We're distracted by the eternal things, or distracted from the eternal things. That we ought to be doing this work also. That we ought to be thinking about those around us, thinking about those who have needs, thinking about those who are enjoying life, yet they don't realize their true need. And you come to the conversation that Jesus was having with these religious leaders, and they came to the important question, are we blind also? It's the blind man who comes to the realization, you know what, the reason why I'm stumbling is not because I'm clumsy, it's because I'm actually blind. And it is then that that true religion begins, is the realization, I am blind and I need sight. And that Jesus alone is the, is the one who gives us eyes to see. That when you and I realize, we've got to stop pointing fingers at other people. That they're the ones that are causing the problem. They're the ones that have made the fault. I'm righteous. When we stop saying those words, we realize, wait a minute. The buck stops with me. I'm the sinner. Let me stop pointing fingers at other people. Let me not think that, that I could distract God. Hey, what about him? What about her? No, 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 God, God, he's looking right at you. That on, after you die, there's no distracting God. He's, he's not going to lose track of, of the six billion or more people. No, no, he's going he's gonna to take account of every single one. And then there's the matter of the maturing of Christ's church. That we should desire to be equipped. That at times it's, it's difficult 
to tell others about this good news because we don't have all the right answers, right? That uh, you're like me, an introvert, right? I don't have the, uh, the fast-thinking feet. So, so it's like, shoot, he asked this question. It was a great question. I gave him a dumb answer. Well, we need to ask God for wisdom in that, that we might give the right answers to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ, that he might refine us, and that you and I would realize that part of our refining is that we would stop saying that my name, my kingdom, my will, but that continually you and I, as the kingdom advances, would be saying your name, your kingdom, and your will. That we might pray for the destruction of these strongholds of Satan, even in our own hearts, and that we might look forward and look around us and say, my family members, my friends, my neighbors, my enemies, that they would have the good news of the gospel, that they would believe upon it and be saved, that this is the advancement of God's kingdom in your life and in mine. May we go to our God together and pray.